Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, thank you for downloading. Luke Jones here, not Matt Chorley. I'd like to start this episode of the podcast with an apology. Uh, the British people have made immense sacrifices in the ongoing battle against COVID-19, and I now fear that the fact that the podcast was not uploaded yesterday may have become a distraction in the fight against uh, the virus. Um, working in this office is an immense privilege. I try to do right by you all to behave with civility and decency and act to the high standards you rightly expect from the Times Redbox podcast. Unfortunately, though, you didn't get Tim Shipman taking you through PMQs yesterday. Apologies. Um, deputy heads will roll. Uh, but welcome back to the podcast. And today we've got loads in store. Our fantastic columnist will be up in a moment. After that, we will hear uh, about China continuing this show's uh, ongoing international relations um we call it a tour. It's kind of a tour around different countries and what they want. We've already heard about uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Russia. Um, and now China. What does, she, what does Xi Jinping want? Who is she? What does she want? Uh, we will delve into that after our columnists, Carol Lewis and James Marriott. Shall we start with, um, let's start with Christmas parties, shall we? Uh, we've been talking about it quite a bit on, on the programme already. Um, Carol, where, where do you sit on the spectrum of people uh, saying, uh, you know, one end, this is, a, this is an outrage and, and will undermine public health messaging or who really cares? Where, where do you sit? <laughs> so, so last year, if you wanted a Christmas party, you had to claim it was a work meeting. Yes. This year, this year, if you want to have a, a work meeting, you have to claim it's a Christmas party. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it's utterly bonkers, isn't it? So you told us last night we have to work from home, but we can still go out. We have to wear a mask on the tube, but not in a nightclub. We have to show a vaccine pass to go to a club, but not to go to a restaurant. I mean, it just makes no sense whatsoever. And... Coming after Patterson and Peppa Pig, parties, it just kind of seals this idea that, that Boris doesn't really know what he's doing. He's going in all different directions and mm. it adds fuel to, for the anti-vaxxers and the COVID deniers to get in there. And as Starmer says, Boris has made fools of all of us. Mm. So I, I don't think it's just a petty row about a few parties and a quiz and a, a, a cheese and, and wine, although clearly they didn't know about the martini. Um, <laughs> they, it, I, I don't think it is petty from that point of view. I think if we, if we are all in this together, if it is really a danger, if we are going to follow the science, then this does matter. And James, what about you? Did, did you watch or, or listen to the uh, the COVID briefing last night and think... That Prime Minister has got his hand firmly on the tiller. 
it just seems just so amazingly chaotic, doesn't it? And now he's had a baby, it just seems even more... <laughs> even the baby seems like a kind of chaotic event. Yeah, I just didn't see that is, coming. Your mind is absolutely blown by that because you just think the stress behind the scenes. I know. <laughs> I mean, the fact that all this was going on yesterday and 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 he was on, knew, presumably, he was on the verge of having a baby or, mm. um, or maybe was trying to encourage... Um, <laughs> the baby to arrive as soon as possible. I don't know if you can tell a baby to arrive. Um, I, I quite like the idea that the baby is a kind of is a kind of dead cat, and I feel they should maybe give it an incredibly ridiculous and exotic name. To, Such as I don't, I don't know. I mean, Allegra. Allegra. Yes, exactly. And they just sort of turn the baby, give the baby a stupid enough name. The baby itself will attract all the news attention. I think that's all you can do at this point. Oh, I see. But put the even the baby a day old. Put the baby out of some kind of make news the baby a dead cat. Yeah, yes. maybe call the baby dead cat or something just to. Um... <laughs> well, we've had more news on the on the parties front because, of course, there's this investigation which the which the prime minister announced yesterday on the on the, into all of these. You heard it on this program during PMQs. Well, in the Commons a few minutes ago, uh, the paymaster general has been updating the Commons on the status uh, on the uh, of those investigations into those various parties. Now, I can confirm to the House that the Cabinet Secretary's investigation will establish the facts surrounding the following. Allegations made of a gathering at number 10 Downing Street on the 27th of November 2020, a gathering at the Department for Education on the 10th of December 2020, and allegations made of a gathering at number 10 Downing Street on the 18th of December 2020. Now, the primary purpose of the Cabinet Secretary's investigation will be to establish swiftly a general understanding of the nature of the gatherings, including attendance, the setting, I, the setting and the purpose, and uh, with reference to adherence to the guidance in place at the time. Now, if required, the investigation will establish whether individual disciplinary action is warranted. Now, Mr Speaker, the work will be undertaken by officials in the Cabinet Office at the direction of the Cabinet Secretary with support from the Government Legal Department. Now, those officials will have access to all relevant records and be able to speak to members of staff. Now, as with all internal investigations, if during the course of the work any evidence emerges of behaviour that is potentially a criminal offence, the matter will be referred to the police and the Cabinet Office's work may be paused. The word if doing a lot of heavy lifting there. That was Michael Ellis, the Paymaster General, updating the Commons a few uh, minutes ago. Uh, that debate and discussion continues, but we'll keep an ear across it and bring you uh, any more interesting nuggets as and when they happen. Um, Carol, do you have full confidence in all those investigations as laid out there? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, mean, I think I think it was very um, obvious when he said the word gathering and all the heckling. I think they're going to try and pin this on a technicality that it wasn't actually a party. It was a gathering of work colleagues. I mean, not quite a business meeting. I don't think they could pull that off. But I think they are going to try. There are there are some loopholes where if it was in a public department, there could mm. be a gathering, but not a party. And I think they'll have to then be painful conversations about what the difference between a gathering and a party is. Is the anger, James, slightly overtaking us here? Because in thinking about the risk at that time, OK, we were just coming out of a lockdown in November. There were tier two restrictions in London where this is alleged to have taken place in December. Um, these people were working together. They were in an office. They then had 
drinks and cheese and wine and may have not been doing much work but had frivolities, but they were there in the same office where they were usually any day meeting people that they would normally see. Um, was this really a risky thing to do when many of us were breaking rules? There were plenty of people who we all know who were doing things that they shouldn't have done at that time. I mean, I, I take your point, but I just think if you're if you're the people in charge of making the rules, you're making these rules for the country, it's kind of incumbent on you, I think, to stick to them more closely than anybody. Otherwise, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a message, it's a messaging thing as well, isn't it? And it's just sort mm. of, it should be a matter of principle. I just, I think any competent, any competent government would have just been so strict about this, wouldn't it? They'd have just been like, this is, we have to be so careful. You know, this is a huge thing we're asking the country to do. We have to be incredibly uh, sure not to be hypocritical about it. And the fact that we're careless about it, it just seems, I don't know, it just seems so sort of indicative of the nature of the government. And I just, I just can't imagine why they weren't super strict and careful because I just feel like you, you would be. Because, Carol, do you agree? Because by that point, remember, we'd had that whole uh, Stucci over Rita Ora. We had the Sky News party. There were plenty of headlines, footballers as well, breaking lockdown. It was definitely in the public consciousness, people being caught out having parties and doing things that they shouldn't be. No, I agree with James. I mean, it, it makes a big difference. This is with number 10. And I think one of the parties was the day before they announced that we couldn't really have Christmas. So I think it, it does matter. They should have set an example. They'd also had plenty of uh, warning. We'd had plenty of things like Barnard Castle. Yeah. We'd, ha we'd had Neil Ferguson. And, you know, we'd, we'd had all of these um, markers where everyone had said, look, we're all in it together. They need to pull their act together. And clearly they didn't take it seriously. They knew mm. one rule for them, one rule for us. Let's move on to some other things uh, in the papers. Uh, one thing reported in The Times today is... Um, some comments from, from Liz Truss uh, talking yesterday about pride in Britain. Britons must embrace the history of the empire, warts and all, uh, Liz Truss said, the Foreign Secretary, if it's to stand up to hostile states. Um, James, how does that sit with you? This is something which is constantly being debated back and forth, isn't it? It's something that always really confuses me because it's, it's my opinion that basically part of being a mature country that's capable of having you know reasonable conversations about is accepting that not everything you did... In the, not everything the country did in the past was wonderful. I mean, that would just be an absurd thing to expect of any country. And it always, I always get really baffled that people, that there's sort of strain in thinking that people want to think that everything Britain did was, was magnificent because obviously it wasn't, and obviously we ran an enormous global empire, and obviously the outcomes of that are going to be in. There obviously, many terrible things happened. It seems sort of strange to imagine that that mm. wouldn't that wouldn't be the case. And I, I always think it's kind of amazing. I don't know, it just always seems the most kind of extraordinary kind of bias that just because you live in a country, you, you begin to think that everything it did was marvellous. Whereas, you know, you can imagine full well that if we had been the country that had been conquered by another global empire, we would be very unhappy about it. And yeah. I, I just seems, it seems so strange there's a double thing that goes on to people there. It's not something, it's not something I particularly understand. I, I don't feel like I particularly mind knowing that, you know, Britain did awful things in the past. I don't feel sort of personally offended by it. I think it's just... Just but, history. But it's the word embrace, isn't it, Carol? And does that sort of necessarily say uh, uh, accept and uh, consider and, and move forward? Or does it say celebrate and defend? I think the word embrace does imply the latter. And I think what we need to do is the former. We need to accept it. I think we, we've gone from celebrating our colonialism to loathing everything about it. And I think, like, as James says, what we need... To do is end up somewhere in the middle where we accept we accept the things that we did mm. and that they are part of, of, of who we are as a society but also how it perhaps has shaped 
or is shaping some of the things that are happening, like Brexit and and the infighting. Um, I mean, it was it was interesting that Truss wasn't at uh, PMQs uh, to hear the party debate because she was actually you know sort of talking about we need to stop this petty infighting and start looking outwardly. Unfortunately, she seemed to to then imply that autocratic regimes were, were already on this. And, and I think that was pro- perhaps a wrong parallel to draw. You know, Ch- China and Russia aren't looking backwards, they're looking forwards, and now we need to do the same. I, I don't think we should take any cues from them mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, but yes, I think we do need to spend some time um, accepting who we are and, and uh, how that shapes us today. James, tell us about your column today. Um, you're looking back on Christopher Hitchens. Well, not necessarily looking back, but more, I guess, looking around at his uh, his incredible persistence in terms of YouTube videos. I mean, like he pops up on TikTok. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by um, this kind of major cultural transition that's happened in the last sort of 20 years or so from um, a culture that was predominantly, a, a kind of political and cultural discourse that was predominantly conducted in long form, in print, um, you know, usually at reasonable length to this sudden total transformation where everything is, everything happens so quickly, everything happens on screens, on Twitter, on YouTube, and there's just been this enormous cultural revolution in the way we communicate with each other about our politics. Mm. And Christopher Hitchens, uh, looking back on him, it's the 10th anniversary of his death next week, uh, the famous sort of contrarian journalism, fascinates me as a figure who stood between those two worlds and who started out as as an essayist writing these, you know, long essays on, you know, Proust and um, American, um, you know, long essays in American politics, who completely sort of seemed to anticipate in the later stage of his career the world we're in now with these um, these incredibly kind of contrarian performances, flinging a, you know flinging around insults at uh, mem- audience members who asked him questions, um, you know, using out using outrageous words. Um, you know, you, there's a video of him online, you know, just accusing an audience member of being a fascist, and this all suddenly seems very. Um, it really anticipates the way that our political and cultural discourse is now. And he's a kind of fascinating figure because I think he's the kind of one person from that generation who, for better or for worse, and I, I can think predominantly for the worse, seemed to kind of get the zeitgeist of where things were moving. And looking back at him now, he just seems kind of a very, almost a very 21st century figure, even, you know, a very modern figure, even, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And Carol, is this, I mean, could this simply be put as um, insults play well? Yes, except I think um, Hitchens actually was well-read, clever and witty and could, if needed to, back up his arguments. It's a bit like when you hear people stand in front of a Picasso and say, oh, my five-year-old could have painted that. Well, actually, no, they couldn't because Picasso was classically trained and actually did know what he was doing. I think that Hitchens did have the background to do it. I suspect most people on Twitter who shout at me lazy journalism and drivel but in fact, I don't suspect, I know they don't even read the articles. Mm. They don't actually have any backing for their arguments. So I think um, I agree with, with James that perhaps he was ahead of his time in, in some ways by calling someone a crackpot. But in, in other forms, I think we've taken it to the extreme in places like Twitter, where, where you are just sort of heckled with with. Uh, you know, idiot, drivel, lazy journalists and, and so on. But people don't actually know the arguments behind it. Mm. They haven't read the articles. Uh, I think we've gone another layer still, unfortunately. 
And James, what about the situation now in terms of... So, so Carol, they're saying that, you know, at least Christopher Hitchens had the, the, the knowledge and being well-read to back up everything he did. Is that the same with people who have taken on that mantle, uh, mantle and, and take it forward? I don't think so. I mean, I also think being educated doesn't necessarily give you the right to shout insults at people. And <laughs> I, I, I always was suspicious of Christopher Hitchens that how much his appearance of being very educated and well-read was the way he presented himself, his very sort of posh voice, his very confident manner. My, my personal opinion is that when, whenever you read a Christopher Hitchens essay on something you really know about, and sometimes when I read some of his essays on literature, I'm just like, how well read were you really? There's this um, long essay on the French writer Proust I was reading the other, the, other, the other night when I was preparing for this piece. And an awful lot of his essay on Proust is about like the novel's first sentence and the first hundred pages. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, I, I wonder how much of it was a performance for him and how much we're willing to be taken in by people who, you know, have posh voices and are very, you know, present themselves very confidently. And I also, yeah, I also think, you know, being educated doesn't mean that you have a license to to be, to be rude and insulting to people, I think. Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't, yeah. But is that taken on uh, still, Carol? Do you think there's still people who are presenting that kind of, that sheen, that kind of pseudo-intellectualism to, to what they do? Yes, probably. Um, I don't know um, how taken in we are by it still because it tends not to be in the spoken form it tends to be you know in 150 characters on a on a platform um so i don't you can't tell what people's accents are like or their education and and very often you can't tell from their tweets either so um yeah yes i mean he was he was perhaps taking advantage of his time i mean i totally accept what james says i i don't sit at night reading proust so perhaps i was taken in a little That was Carol Lewis and James Marriott. Next, what does China want? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to the Times Redbox podcast. I'm Luke Jones, not Matt Chorley. Now, China. Xi Jinping. Who is she? What does she want? 
His power at home and on the world stage has grown since he took office in 2014. In the UK, EU and the US, there are plenty of prominent politicians hawkish about China's human rights record, its economic power in the developing world. Yesterday, the UK followed the US, Australia and Canada to stage a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics being held in Beijing. But is that the best approach? We will hear in a moment uh, the EU and UK views. First, the US. Max Borkus was US ambassador to China during Obama's second term. First of all, how is his welcome in Beijing? Well, it was um, very warm, but also special in the sense that um, all ambassadors, when they arrive, present their credentials to the chief of state. So I, I had to present my credentials to President Xi. But uh, the interesting little sidelight was um, First Lady Michelle Obama was scheduled to come on over to China with her mother and two children about two, three days after I arrived. And ordinarily, it takes two weeks for a new ambassador to have his credentials presented and received by the head of state. So the Chinese were very accommodating. I could, they could not have been better. And, and frankly, they, they rushed me to the head of the line. In fact, they... In, uh, put, uh, they had me present my credentials to President Xi in a side room so the other ambassadors could not see it <laughs> who were who ended, ended the line because I was put at the head of the line. So the, it was very nice. We um, we had a nice chat, President Xi and I. We talked about oh, the fa- first lady and the family. And the, and it was just a lot of small talk. And after a while, he turned to me. He, he said to me, well, you, you've got to get the airport. You've got to get there to, to re- re- uh, receive the first lady when she arrives. So um, let me help you get there. So they're 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 very warm, very accommodating in that sense. Um, yes. And after that, um, it was basically just business as usual. Uh, and when you say business as usual, what were you able to to glean in those early days? Because there were early days not just for you, but also for uh, Xi Jinping himself. He hadn't been in that position for long, I guess, when you got there. What could you glean about what he what he was after in terms of his foreign policy aims? Well, he was, uh, first of all, President Xi is hard to read. Um, he keeps his cards, cards close to his vest. He's poker-faced. Uh, he has kind of an enigmatic smile, but he is almost always smiling. It's not a dour expression. It's sort of a smiling, um, pickish, uh, you know, Mona Lisa sort of smile. Um, and it, it's, um, you make points to him. Uh, he'd listen very, very civilly, never argumentative, never, ever argumentative, never, ever say anything personal uh, in any way toward me or the United States or, or anybody else. Um, it was really, he's quite quite civil that way, but he wouldn't say much. You had to spend most of your time with him and with other Chinese officials uh, making your point, um, um, taking your brief uh, from the president to him or to others. And they would listen very politely and I was very lucky, frankly. I was able to see anybody I wanted to see. And I made a point of picking out those in the, in the government, especially who I wanted to see. And I was able to see everyone but one. One person I could, who would not meet with me, was um, his name is Lee John Shu. Um, he now is on the standing committee of the Politburo. And in a certain sense, he's uh, President Xi's right-hand person. 
what do you make of, of the current state of relations between the US and, and China? One of the reasons that we're talking about this this week is this uh, argument between the US and China over uh, the Winter Olympics. The US has said it's not to, it's going to boycott uh, the Games, essentially. It doesn't want to uh, let China use this as a or sports washing is the phrase, isn't it? Use this kind of big international uh, fanfare uh, to maybe cover up some of the more questionable things that, that it's doing. Um is this a sort of souring in relations? Because it seems like only recently after the COP26 climate conference that um, there was a kind of constructive relationship between the US and China. Well, it's much more tense now. I served um, as master to China, uh, 2014, 2017, three years. But since then, since my departure, um, the uh, relationship has clearly soured. It soured significantly. I think it's various reasons. One, just natural. China is a rising power. Um, we've all heard about the, the Thucydides trap. Um, many people talk about it, where rising power threatens a larger established power. It's, it's natural. And I think Americans in the West are very concerned about the rising China. Don't forget, China is a huge country. China produces half, half of the world's steel, half the world's coal, one time half the world's aluminum. Um, consume half the world's power. And, and on the road, I wouldn't be too surprised if they have more than, uh, more than half the world's artificial intelligence scientists and, and deep learning scientists and quantum computing scientists and, 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 and semiconductor chip production. They're, they're, they're very large and they're very focused. They're very organized and um, they, they will do very, very well. That's all number one. Point number one is some of this is just natural, a rising power versus a established power. Um, second is, um, I think, um, the, uh, the rhetoric during the Trump administration when um, President Trump you know, called the virus that originated in China the, the Wuhan virus, that really caused a lot of Americans to be very upset with China and caused the Chinese to dig in. They, they're very upset with being tagged with, uh, or, uh, with, with so-called the Wuhan virus. It was a mistake. Is an accident, whether it's natural uh, from an animal or out of a lab, still it's accidental. It, it very much upset the, um, the Chinese. But that, that is just an example of, of the harsh rhetoric, um, superheated rhetoric from the United States criticizing China um, in many, many ways, um, uh, criticizing China for human rights abuses in Xinjiang province, criticizing China for human rights violations in Hong Kong, um, and, that, and, that, and sanctioning uh, Chinese based upon those alleged human rights violations. Add to that, China, America would be very exercising its number three, its, its national security rights, as it should, uh, to protect the United States by um, sanctioning certain uh, U.S. companies or Chinese companies that um, might uh, threaten U.S. national security um, or build up the Chinese military. And that, that's all those actions just are a form of decoupling and which do sound good in the United States um, as part of United States values and, and principles, but which um, caused the Chinese to double down, uh, to dig down and, and become much more self-sufficient and, and develop their own uh, products. And this, is, this gets to the you know, supply chain question um, it's um, a, there, are, a, there are major reasons why we have big supply chain problems in the world today. One's clearly COVID, 
But another is because when the United States began to exercise its national security rights, let's say um, prevent Chinese companies from getting US uh, semiconductors or machines that manufacture semiconductors, that caused a big, uh, major consumers of semiconductors like Huawei to buy up as much as they could, not put pressure on other companies. And you know, semiconductors are used in so many different um, industries, even in IoT and the refrigerators. I mean, you name it. And all that is caused added to the the, the, the restrictions that caused the, um, the supply chain problems. So this is things have changed significantly in the last several years. And away from that um, inward stuff happening within China. What about their kind of outward excursions? And I'm thinking about Taiwan and how concerned you are about what might arise out of what China might proactively do about their difficult relationship with Taiwan. US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin only this week was saying that he was concerned that the Chinese were basically doing rehearsals for military operations against Taiwan. What does the West, what does NATO do in, in response to that if it happens? When I was serving in Beijing, often, um, whether it's President Xi Jinping or the, the, the special representative, I've forgotten his name now, who represented Taiwan, man, oh man, over and over again, they just tell me how special Taiwan was. It Taiwan's a core issue to China. It's, it's um, existential, along with Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet. I mean, any outside uh, effort to undermine that is, 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 uh, addresses China's sense of its own existentialism. They, you don't tamper with that. And Taiwan is one. Um, I, I think that um, that um, China will do whatever it takes to try to get control of Taiwan. Um, they'll play the long game. Don't forget it was either Mao or Deng Xiaoping who said to either Nixon or Kissinger, hey, when the question of Taiwan came up, oh, no, we won't deal with Taiwan right now. This, we'll put that off on the shelf. We'll deal with that later. It is let it simmer. Um, point being that they, the Chinese are very patient. They'll work with Taiwan. They'll try to connect, uh, develop ties with Taiwan. I was once down in Fujian Province, um, talking to this party secretary in Fujian Province. It's on the it's a coastal province in China, just opposite Taiwan. Man, I was a little naive. I said, said to the party secretary, "Gee, you know, um, we're a little concerned about all those." Um, islands being developed in the South China Sea. Oh, he looked at me and he kind of laughed. Said, we don't care anything about that. We just care about Taiwan. It's, we love Taiwan. We love all the business we have here from Taiwan. We're developing just great you know, trade relations and commercial relations with Taiwan. So China will work hard to develop Taiwan. Now, China, in my judgment, may, I think it's highly unlikely, may attempt some kind of course of action against Taiwan. But that's as far as it goes. China is not a military aggressive country. It just isn't. There are border skirmishes with India. That's been going on for ages. That's not going to amount to much. Um, Taiwan, if they ever get control of Taiwan, militarily, they'll stop. Um, their main goal, China's main goal, um, is, is economic development, building up their own economy, uh, developing ties, economic ties, developing ties in Africa, um, ports around the world. It's all economic. There's no real history. If you look at Chinese history of military aggression, they point to the United States, say, look at look, what you Americans have done. You've gone to Iraq and Afghanistan. You went to Korea, you went to Vietnam. I mean, <laughs> they have not been aggressive militarily. Like, economically, yes, but not militarily. 
Well, we'll hear from somebody who disagrees with that in a moment. That was Ambassador Max Borkus, US ambassador to China from 2014 to 2017. We're continuing our international affairs uh, tour, looking at what various countries want uh, this morning. China. Uh, now, uh, Reinhard Butikoffer, who chairs the European Parliament's China delegation. The vision that Chinese military party and state leader Xi Jinping has laid out for his country is that by the middle of the century, China wants to be the dominating power on the globe. And China pursues that aim with an ever more aggressive foreign policy. And when you say aggressive foreign policy, we were just hearing from a former US ambassador uh, to Beijing, and he said um, economic aggression, yes, but but not militaristic. Oh, isn't, isn't that interesting? Um, I mean, uh, I recall... Uh, the, the clashes we had just recently along the Himalayan border. I recall m- military coercion against the Philippines uh, and other neighbors in the South China Sea. I recall increasing incursions from the Chinese Air Force into the uh, Air Defense Identification Zone or Taiwan. I recall very aggressive uh, measures in the East China Sea. So so maybe your source um, should look at those instances. And in terms of the economic side of things, um, what concerns you about what China is doing? I guess particularly in some of the developing world, Africa is always pointed out as a place where there is lots of inward investment uh, from China. Many people concerned about uh, China's motives in doing that. Look, um I can't, I can't possibly argue that investment from third countries in Africa is, uh, is a negative. Uh, it, it always, obviously, it always depends on the conditions and the purposes. If there is huge investment into building more coal-fired power plants, that's obviously a negative investment into um, renewables. Uh, might be judged very differently um, if there is an investment that makes you economically dependent and limits your the the scope of your own policy decisions in such a recipient country. Uh, I would consider that a negative. So, so I think um, there's no point in being uh, extremely. Um, general in, in, in assessments, you have to look uh, to look at the facts. But in order to, to criticize China's economic coercion, we don't have to travel all the way to Africa. We can stay in Europe and we can address the situation that we're presently experiencing in Lithuania, where China tries to force that country into compliance with a Chinese policy that the European Union has never signed up to. So this is something that we want to stand up against. And that's why the EU has been working on an anti-coercion instrument. And what is that exactly? And and how could it work? It will be an economic instrument that uh, could be applied if a third country tries to uh, interfere illegally with uh, the decision-making uh, 
responsibilities of the EU or an EU member state and the uh, reaction would be um, possibly economic. Mm. Of course, the instrument would also foresee offering the um, um, aggressive country a way out. We, we would uh, want to negotiate. We would want to give them an off-ramp. But if they would insist on their coercive measures, there would, could be economic countermeasures from the side of the EU, including sanctions, including uh, denying access to the European market, what have you. Because what do you think China's motives are in doing that? To take the Lithuania example, um, I don't want to get into Russia, but it's, it's clear what Russia wants in terms of undermining the integrity of the EU. On the Chinese side, is it clear exactly what they're up to? Is it something similar to Vladimir Putin? China is a different player, much more powerful, much more ambitious than Putin is. So I would not put the two in the same box, even though both of them are dictators. Um, but um, China clearly, um, want, China does not have uh, revisionist territorial claims like uh, Putin does, uh, but China certainly wants to impose its political will on other countries. And in this case, um, that was uh, initiated, the, the measures were, were brought um, against uh, Lithuania because Lithuania um, changed the name of a Taiwan representation office from Taipei to Taiwan. This is well within the limits of the European One China policy. So China doesn't have a claim. The same applies to Australia. If you want to take another example, where because the Australian government demanded that there should be a reckoning of the origin of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, mm. uh, China thought that they should uh, punish Australia. This is just unacceptable behavior, and we should opt for a strategic solidarity between democracies. And just finally, on that idea of um, all banding together on this kind of thing, what do you make of the current situation with regards to the Winter Olympics in Beijing, the UK, Canada and Australia now boycotting it? Should all EU countries get behind that effort as well? And do you think that kind of action actually works in trying to, I guess, from the US perspective, steering China away from um, indulging in genocide in Xinjiang? No, it does not. I don't think that... Uh... The, the Chinese Communist Party will refrain from its uh, uh, crimes against humanity in Xinjiang uh, because we boycott uh, the Olympic Winter Games, but still we should. Um, the European Parliament has called for that with an overwhelming majority, and I'm happy to see that now an increasing number of countries uh, uh, announced that will, they will follow that path. And by the way, the president of Germany just announced that he would not be going to Taiwan, mm. uh, sorry, to, to Beijing. And uh, also, uh, according to the information that I have, not a single German politician has signaled that they would want to be attending the uh, Olympics in Beijing. So I'm happy with that. That's Reinhard Butikoffer, who chairs the European Parliament's China delegation. So we've heard uh, former ambassador uh, from the US to Beijing. We've heard that view there from the European Parliament. Uh, what about the UK and uh, where we sit in all of this? Um, Vila Nowens is a senior research fellow for Asia Studies at the Royal United Services Institute think tank. Uh, morning, Vila. 
Good morning. Um, in terms of how the UK should be approaching this, first of all, should we just deal with what happened yesterday in terms of the UK joining this boycott about uh, the, the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022, joining Canada and Australia and the rest of them? Is that consistent with, with how the UK has approached China or wanted to approach China? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I think over the last few years, you've seen a, an increasingly uh, more skeptical stance towards China. Um, that, of course, is one that I think the government still tries to, to turn into a balanced approach. But I think there's no doubt about that the UK has taken a more stronger stance on human rights issues when it comes to China. And it's been both vocal in its statements, uh, both uh, in its own statements, but those with partners as well. And it's also, you know, levied sanctions against China uh, for some of those human rights abuses and, of course, responded to the situation in Hong Kong quite strongly. So this is just an additional measure uh, on top of that. And in terms of, I mean, we just heard uh, from, from our two previous interviews, mm -hmm. in, in terms of things that, that China... Uh, aims for, is looking for in terms of maybe military aggression, if we're talking about Taiwan, in terms of uh, uh, economics, in terms of the investment it's putting into developing nations, particularly Africa, looking for influence. In terms of the UK's position, what is troubling about uh, what China does in terms of foreign affairs? What is concerning our own foreign office? I mean, that's quite broad, but I think there are a number of things. Um, you know, there's there's the issues, I guess, in the bilateral relationship that directly impact the UK. Mm. Um, of course, there's you know, issues around uh, investments uh, being scrutinized more, uh, protecting um, UK uh, sovereignty and protecting UK uh, uh, intellectual property, for example, and strengths in some of these key areas. There's um, concerns around uh, Hong Kong, as I've already mentioned, which of course already um, has, uh, has impacted the bilateral relationship uh, given historical issues. Um, but then also more generally, I think it's uh, how China behaves in, in the international order and in the international arena, what that means for the rules that we all rely on and, and whether that means that we're all on an equal playing field or not. That directly and indirectly impacts both the UK and other countries in the region that, uh, you know, are not necessarily great powers uh, and have to rely on um, a framework that we all abide by. And so much of this is now being done as the West, or at least the collection of uh, US, Canada, Australia, a UK. Is that how things are going to work? The UK doing things on its own, reacting to things that China does by itself, is going to achieve very little? Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think, of course, you are stronger in numbers, but it's important to also maintain your own uh, your own uh, strategic autonomy and, and do what's uh, in your own interest. Um, so I think it'll be a mixture of both. But what we have been seeing is that countries are uh, realizing that, um, you know, working through these smaller groupings is actually a really easy way to uh, move the needle in the debate and bring, uh, you know, the discussion more prominently uh, in the media as well. So, you know, that that mini lateralism that we see evolving is something that I think is here to stay for sure. And that's where we end our look at China and international relations and what they want. I hope you found it useful. I certainly did. Um, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, um, it's a very useful thing to do. It helps you. It helps us. Um, rate it if you like. And um, you can follow me on Twitter as well if you like, at LukeJones03. I realised yesterday the podcast wasn't uh, uploaded because I didn't get the usual smattering of, um, let's be honest, slightly nerdy people following me on uh, Twitter, which whenever I do this podcast, there's a stream of people and I think, why are all these sort of think tanky types following me? Oh, it's because I'm doing the Times Redbox podcast. Uh, so welcome along if that is you. And we'll be back tomorrow.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.